Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about the Mount Desert Island-based project called A Landscape of Change. Landscape of Change is a collaborative project with the goal of compiling and publishing historical records on the Mount Desert Island environment in the late 1800s and comparing these with contemporary data to document change over time. While the project focuses on the science of environmental change, it also explores how everyday people can provide meaningful scientific data and how people might choose to respond to ecological change as individuals, as artists, as activists, or even as a society as a whole. So on today's show about a landscape of change, we'll hear first from Rainy Bench, Executive Director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive, Jennifer Steen Borer, an artist in residence with the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, and Seth Benz, director of bird ecology at the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. Later in the show, in a second conversation, we'll also hear from Katherine Schmidt, science writer with Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park, and Kyle Lima, data analyst also with the Skudik Institute. Please note that both of our conversations today were pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. So let's get started with a landscape of change here on Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Well, it's great to have you all. Welcome to Coastal Conversations. I'm really excited to talk to all of you today. And I think that the way we'll start is we'll just have you go around and introduce yourselves and maybe share what you're connection is to the Landscape of Change project, just briefly, and then in a second, we'll go into it much more deeply. Um, so let's go ahead and start with Rainy. Great. Thank you so much for having us today. Um, my name is Rainy Bench, and I'm the Executive Director for the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. And we are the organization that sort of asked the critical question, can historic resources be used to understand climate change? And record and document changes that are happening in our, in our community, and then use that information to advocate for better education and public engagement. And that's what started this whole landscape of change project and the partnerships that have come since then. Great, thank you, Rainy. Let's go with Johanna. Hi, my name is Johanna Blackman and I'm the executive director and a founding member for Climate to Thrive here on Mount Desert Island. And Climate to Thrive got involved with Landscape of Change um, at the invitation of Rainy. We were really excited to do so. And I think our role has been that of, you know, really trying to consider how this 
incredibly valuable information and look at the past and the present and the future can be transformed into inspiring action um, to preserve that future. Um, and I think it's been a really valuable partnership and we're really grateful to be involved. Thank you, thank you. How about you, Jen? Hi, I'm Jennifer Boer. I'm an artist and a conceptual photographer from Bar Harbor. I work with ecosystem dynamics, climate change, and marine debris. I've been the artist in residence at the MDI Historical Society for several years. And for the most recent issue of Chewbacca, I did a series of mixed media drawings that were exploring the data behind changing ecosystem dynamics in the Gulf of Maine and on MDI, sort of trying to look at the, like the actual impact, but also the emotional impact of the changes. That's great. Thank you, Jen. And I will just add that Chibaco is the annual journal of the MDI Historical Society. Um, and Seth. Hi, um, I'm Seth Benz. I'm the director of bird ecology at the Scudic Institute. Um, our role in the Landscape of Change uh, project is um, leading the citizen science and data analysis um, information gathering and, and dispersal for the group. And um, I, I am particularly interested in the historical um, bird observations compared to contemporary um, observations. Great, thank you, Seth. And we have two more people that we're gonna be interviewing who are directly connected to the Landscape of Change project. Um, we'll be interviewing them next week. So today we're gonna get started with these four folks. Um, and um, let's start at the beginning. And Rainy, I'm looking at you. Um, and if you could give us an overview of what the Landscape of Change project is all about, how it came to be, how long it's been, in process and sort of what you hope to achieve. Sure. So when I took over as executive director for the Historical Society in January of 2020, the process for publishing a series of historic manuscripts or, or actually their logbooks was already underway between Catherine Schmidt and our journal Chewbacca, where we were going to reproduce the first three years of a series of journals that were recorded between 1880 and 1883 by a group of students from Harvard called the Champlain Society. And they were on the island camping and exploring, but also feeling like they needed to do meaningful work. And as part of that meaningful work, they were taking really detailed observations of plant species birds, climate records, they even took height of mountain elevations on the island, and all this really incredibly rich detailed information was kept in these logbooks, which we have in the collections of the Historical Society. Those were digitized a number of years ago and transcribed by a volunteer. And since then, Catherine Schmidt had been really interested in the observations of this group and this sort of really unique historic record that exists of what MDI's environment was like between 1880 and um, the Harvard or the Champlain Society came from Harvard every summer for 10 years. And so it's this really great snapshot of a, a specific period of time. And in annotating those to publish for Chewbacca, when I inherited that project, for me, I wondered sort of what is the 
the point of people reading these journals who maybe aren't scientists, why do they care about these kids from Harvard that were here over a hundred years ago, recording MDI landscapes? Why are we privileging this voice right now? And what is the impact for me, it's all about why history matters. And so I personally was sort of struggling with what is the so what of doing this project. And that's when I asked Catherine, is there value in these records to comparing with observations that are being recorded today to understand change over time? And then can we use that to be able to better engage our audiences with understanding the impacts of change on MDI specifically so we can make smarter decisions in the future about how we want to react to both in terms of proactive, positive responses, but also what are the things that are beyond our control that we need to understand so that we can um, address them and, and just acknowledge it. And so she wholeheartedly said, yes, this is absolutely a very valid thing that we should be doing and exploring. And so we brought Acadia National Park to the table, um, Skudik Institute, where Catherine works. Um, I wanted to also include College of the Atlantic, students from Harvard initiated this, and we wanted to make sure we had student involvement moving forward and education partners. And then we um, were really had a wonderful experience with Jerry Bowers at the MDI Biological Laboratory, helping us to understand um, how we can work with this data and helping to support launching a website and a, a data map. And then um, A Climate to Thrive with Johanna's partnership to really understand that every decision that we make has an impact on next generations. And so everything that we are going through right now is a result of decisions made in the past. And I wanted that continuum of past, present, and future to be represented in the partnership that we developed. And so the first year of Landscape of Change was focused on compiling, like pulling all the information out of that historic um, journal series and um, just digitizing it. We were looking for specifically birds, pollinators, seawater temperature and climate observations, all of which were in the Champlain Society journals, but we also looked to other historic records as well, including from other scientists, like the Proctor Collection um, and, and some other individual records. So those were all pulled out and I'm really grateful for the scientists involved in this because their, their flexibility in working with historic data is remarkable and necessary for the success of this project. And so that historic information was then um, compared with observations taken by community or citizen scientists on MDI throughout the summer of 2021 and 2020. And so then just this last winter, Skudik spent the um, winter analyzing the historic observations compared to the modern observations and just released a report analyzing what those findings are. And Catherine and Seth can go into much more detail about the, the meat of those findings. Um, and then now we're just starting the second phase, which is digging into each specific resource to understand what other information is out in our community that we can draw in specifically related to birds is the first study we're going to be conducting um, and, and try to get deeper into the historic records, deeper into modern observations and do analysis of why are the changes that we are seeing happening taking place. Thank you, Rainey. Um, the thing that is sort of most compelling to me about this project and to hearing your description about it is that 
it really combines so many different kinds of knowledge. Um, and you yourselves represent so many different kinds of knowledge. So we have Rainey, who's a historian. We have Seth, who's a bird ecologist. We have Johanna, who is it is climate organizer a good way to describe you? And you'll you'll be able to describe us better. We have Chen, who's an artist and photographer. Um, and then we have the folks who we're going to talk to next week who represent communications and science and students. Um, so uh, it really is an, uh, a project that intersects across many different ways of knowing and understanding and interpreting the landscape, which I just think is so fascinating. Um, there is a science component, and I'm going to ask Seth to um, describe what the science component is. So all these logs were collected in the 1800s by the Champlain Society, and you're looking through them, and you're comparing with data today on some of the same species. So tell us what you've been up to on that front. Right. Well, so the so um, the Champlain Society in 1880 to 1883 specifically were here, um, and we are looking at bird records from July through the first week of September. That that is what they had in terms of consistent effort during those four years or so. And so what we did was um, uh, tried to mimic that well, or, or duplicate that same time frame, however, in contemporary times from 2018 to 2021. So, but the same July through September. And, and we collected contemporary information from eBird. Um, one thing I should say about, you know, this engagement with science, of course, the Champlain Society were using shotguns to study birds and we're collecting, as in killing uh, insects to identify them and, and um, uh, document their presence. Today, we, we have these apps that are iNaturalist and eBird. We have them on our phones. In our case at Scudic Institute, for folks that may not have uh, iPhones or, or access to that kind of technology, we we carry tablets in the field so that people uh, can participate. And, and we, so we're making that much more accessible, or at least we believe we are. And then um, we can look at what the Champlain Society, for instance, they, um, they found 98 species in that, in that time frame in, back in the 1800s, 1880s. And um, we found uh, 210 species. Now we're talking about birds specifically and uh, versus the insects, although I have insect information as well. Um, and so we can, uh, through data analysis and extrapolation, we can look at what was common during their time and what, what is common today. And we can look at whether that there's the same suite of species or whether those species are changing. And uh, the change tells us something about what's happening environmentally. And that, of course, can be um, layered with, with the environmental uh, records, such as um, temperature and, and measures of other measures of climate change. Um, we can layer those things together to get at this um, the nagging question of, is climate change really Im impacting our bird populations, for instance? Um, and, th and that's the kind of stuff that, we're, that we are um, uh, reporting out on. 
And so, I mean, we have very specific information on, on a whole, you know, a whole lot of different species, species that were, are decreasing, uh, increasing from, those from the times uh, back during the Champlain Society. I, I don't know that we wanna, you know, dive deeply into specific species, um, but we do have that kind of information. Can you, um, you gave, you gave one number that was a comparison of what the Champlain Society had their tally for number of species um, of birds compared to the tally that you guys have collected and your citizen scientists have collected. Can you repeat those numbers and, and just sort of reflect on how you interpret those numbers? What is that? What do they say to you at this time? Right. So the, the number uh, that I used the Champlain Society found 98 species, and um, and then our contemporary effort found two, 210. Um, the the difference we should make a we should make a note that of course in to, today's effort there were many more observers involved than than the Champlain Society had, so that could play a part in in that uh, difference. However, when we look at the specific 98 species that um, uh, the Champlain Society found, we can, we can look and see that um, over 20 of them are, are no longer found on MDI. Um, we, can, we can puzzle through the picture of the data that we've collected to, to then dive into certain species that, oh, well, during Champlain, this was common. Uh, now it's not. We might take a bird like Eastern Phoebe. Eastern Phoebe was common when Champlain Society was here and it's common today. So there are examples of different species that um, have decreased, are, are no longer here, um, increased or showing no trends at all. And when, when I'm interpreting this for the public, it's, it's important to be able to you, you know, people tend to recognize certain species and, um, and we, can, we can talk about them, show pictures of those things, and then show these uh, trend uh, th through, data, through data visualizations, we can show our, our trend analysis. And I think that that brings the sort of, the, the bridges the science, so to speak, from, from the Champlain Society to contemporary times and um, makes a little more sense. It also allows us to speak to the, the managers of the park, for instance, um, and, and recommend some changes that we, we might be making. Insectivores, things like uh, swallows are, are disappearing uh, in today's time. We had them back during the Champlain Society. You know, one of the things that's happening elsewhere is that people are putting up more and more uh, boxes for for um, tree swallows, for instance, and and assisting them. So there's there's this opportunity for humans to step in and and uh, help uh, with management efforts. We we're all familiar that bald eagles, osprey, and peregrine falcons have been greatly assisted by human be human uh, efforts to bring back those populations. And so this is, this is sort of the application of that, that same sort of science, uh, but looking more deeply into certain species. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. That was Seth Benz from the Skudik Institute talking about a landscape of change, a project that seeks to document changes in the Mount Desert Island landscape over the last century or more by comparing historical field notes collected in the 1880s with citizen science logs from the modern day. The Landscape of Change project seeks to inspire people to find ways to engage in the complex questions raised by climate change. So next up, you will hear from Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive, and Jennifer Steen Bohr, an artist-in-residence at the MDI Historical Society, who both talk about different ways of connecting and responding to environmental issues. A reminder that our show was pre-recorded today, so we're not taking any calls. Here's Joanna Blackman of A Climate to Thrive. It's just, I've talked to Randy about this, but an expanded concept of stewardship um, and what it means to care for these species um, and for ecological systems and and how we translate that into action. And I think that for many of us, um, you know, when we hear some of the information that Seth just relayed, it's very... um, it's very upsetting. It, it provokes feelings of grief. Um, these are species that we care a lot about and it is very difficult to see what is happening and not know exactly what to do about it. And so that's where I'm, I'm very grateful that we've been involved in this project um, and for the work that's happening in towns on this island that gives people a pathway to get involved, to try to um, mitigate some of the impact that is, that is happening to these species. Yeah, that's that's great, Johanna. And, and and in a minute, I would love to ask you for thoughts on how people can in, get involved in this work. Um, but I want to turn to Jen, because one of the ways that you sort of share your observations, right? So Seth was talking about a more traditional science approach to interpreting what we're seeing in the natural world. Uh, you use your camera and you use your, your artistic interpretation. And Um, I just would like to hear a little bit more about your perspective of how you understand the landscape and the changes that you see and how you how you convey that through your work. Well, a lot of what I do um, really involves I try to take people along with me and show people what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing. And I always say you could probably sum up my entire artistic career as holy cow, look at this. this is amazing or check this out, you know? Um, So the drawings that I did for Chewbacca this year, it's really the first time that I've stepped back and looked at things that I've personally experienced in that larger time scale. Like all of those drawings were things that I observed in 2021. Like looking at the emotional and cultural impact of these changes on MDI in the year 2021 as I noticed them. So this was a very different approach for me. And you looked at, if I recall from looking at your work, um, you looked at uh, five or six changes in the environment that you were observing. And you looked at at alewives, I think, in Somesville. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, that was actually what started this whole project. So there was a massive die-off of alewives 
in the spring of 2021. And right about that time, Rainey said, why don't you do something about climate change for Chewbacca? <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, Cause I had already been thinking about doing cyanotypes of the dead fish, which was really disgusting. I did do that. It was gross. They were literally rotting as I tried to work with them. And I'll be doing a cyanotype demonstration at the opening of the museum and possibly at some of these other talks. We'll see how possible that is. Um, but the alewives that involved going back and not only documenting the die-off, but figuring out why it happened, looking and, and talking a lot to um, Billy Halperin over at Soma's Minel. And it's funny, it turned out that it was not just a, a combination of unfortunately timed seasonal events for the, uh, for the alewives, but also that a culvert had been blocked. So the alewives stayed visible for much longer than usual. I mean, uh, uh, apparently there is normally a certain amount of die-off. There was more in 2021 than usual, but it was also more visible than usual. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, sharing in our show notes where people can take a look at your art because it's there, your art is a, a really just unique way of sort of juxtaposing what you're seeing, the data, and and artistic expression. They're so beautiful. I love them. Um, oh, yeah. And you mentioned potentially upcoming events. And um, I wonder, may maybe Rainy, um, could you share what some of the upcoming events are that people, that our listeners might be able to participate in? Yeah. So Landscape of Change, um, we've been really fortunate to receive funding from the Maine Humanities Council and Bar Harbor Bank and Trust to be able to create a museum without walls. So we're taking the six artworks that Jen did for Chewbacca, which um, she already mentioned the alewives um, and the oysters, but it also has uh, ticks and brown tail moths, shrimp and crabs, green crabs and clams. So we have a, a nice, beautiful series of these large scale graphics that we were able to produce thanks to grant support. And we are taking those out onto the landscape throughout the summer season. And we're inviting scientists, um, me as a historian, Jen as the artist and others to welcome visitors as they drop by to look at the art, talk about the science behind the art that, was in, that inspired the artwork, the historic records, um, what people can do to get involved, just really trying to be out into the landscape much more um, where people are and where the changes are taking place. The easiest way for people to access that would be to go on the Mount Desert Island Historical Society's website and look up our events and find the calendar there. And then in addition to that, if, if people are not able to catch one of the pop-up exhibits without walls, we have a permanent exhibit that will be on display in the lobby of Real Pizza um, starting at the beginning of July and go through the summer season. And then we'll close this series in October with sort of an exhibit closure at Jen's studio. That's great. Thanks. And Johanna, I know a lot of what you all do at A Climate to Thrive is really continually engaging people in the conversation and the action that they can take related to climate change. Um, what are some of the things that, that you might be able to share with people about ways that they can engage? Sure. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, I think that Obviously, climate change is a very overwhelming topic, and for many of us, it is hard to figure out how we, from within our existing lives, can make a difference. Um, 
And I think that there's this perception, very understandably so, that if we don't understand all the science, if we're, or if we're not a scientist or an energy expert, that this really isn't something that you know, we can, can do a lot about. Um, and so one of my favorite things to do, and, and I think a climate thrives favorite things to do is support community members in finding their unique contribution, because what is really needed is for all of us within our existing lives, um, to find the impact that we can have in making a difference. So if you own a restaurant, you know, what can you do in your business to transition off of fossil fuels and more towards sustainable practices? And then taking that a step further out, can you inspire that in other restaurants locally? Or can you work together to um, advocate for the type of support you need through policy or through um, the state or, or beyond to make those changes more possible for businesses? So that's just you know one example of how somebody in a position that might not seem to be about climate change can make a difference. I love that notion of anyone has something to contribute to this conversation. And turning to Seth, um, some people are really passionate about making really detailed observations about what they're seeing in the natural world. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the community and citizen science opportunity and how people who live and work and play on Mount Desert Island and beyond have really contributed their knowledge um, and their observations, whether they're experts or lay people um, to this project. Yeah, it's quite exciting. Um, and I hope that um, during some of these um, aforementioned events that occur, we from the Institute would like to bring our, uh, what, our moth night uh, experiences out. Um, so we set up a, a black light and a, a white sheet and um, see what kind of insects collect under a light and then people can see them. And, and, and just as Johanna uh, uh, spoke about people getting together to talk about climate change right there, you know, science is sort of happening right in front of you, but you don't know it. And you're just, you know, admiring these really colorful moths, which are really, you know, uh, night flying butterflies, if you will, um, both in the same family. And, um, um, you know, it allows, it allows for that conversation to happen. You can, you can look at specific species, talk about their life histories, that kind of thing. And so throughout the region, um, and, or the Acadia region, so including the park and, and surrounding communities, um, we, we plan to have a series of what we call mini bio blitzes. And, and these are, uh, you know, one hour to three hour sort of explorations of discovery where people using their iPhones can take photographs uh, via iNaturalist or um, make recordings through eBird and in eBird's uh, sister app called Merlin. And that gives us information about what is out there. And while you're finding these things, um, it, it just so happens that the locations of those things that you document um, are, you know, sort of ge can be geo-referenced. And, and we're developing maps of where all of these things are occurring on MDI. And I think that, um, the, you know, sort of the, the storytelling through, through mapping where, where things are happening is also telling us about where um, specific environmental conditions uh, continue like like exist. We we already know that red pines are being impacted by a disease, and they're going they're going to wink out in the near future. Um, 
And so, you know, that might be disturbing to some people, but behind the red pines will be, you know, a new suite of species coming in. Um, one story I like to, to tell is the black-capped chickadee, our uh, state bird, is uh, with some predictive models in 80 years, it's, it's expected not to be here. Well, that's because our predominant tree species, the red spruce and balsam fir, uh, the environment is changing at such a pace that those species as well will, will, are likely not to be here, but they'll be replaced by oaks and, and maples sort of coming from the south. And so when the black chap chickadee, if it, it expires or moves northward in its range expansion, behind it will come the Carolina chickadee. And so when we, we need to be careful when we're talking about climate change. It, it's not all um, doom and gloom in my view, it's, it's uh, replacement is happening. Um, and, and so we've already seen the advance of red-bellied woodpeckers and Carolina wrens coming into our area. Cardinals, everybody understands cardinals. Well, 40 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find a cardinal on, on Mount Desert Island, but now they're, they're pretty, pretty darn common. So again, taking that look from the Champlain snapshot, if you will, all the way through to contemporary times, we see these changes. And, and um, you know, to me, engaging people in those conversations while doing explorations kind of makes the, it makes the science perhaps a little more obscure, but the experience sinks in to one's heart and mind. And, and that's what we really want. That I think um, creates effective advocacy when people understand what's happening more deeply on a personal basis. And they can do this stuff right in their own backyards. It's, you know, it's not, you don't have to go to a national park to do it. You can do it right at home. So we're trying to give people the tools um, to do all of the things that I, I believe landscape of change it gives us the opportunity to, um, to demonstrate and, and to express. Yeah, to that effect, I would say I want to just comment on the inspiration piece, um, because I do want to like kind of toot our collective horn, if I may, and say that landscape of change is being noticed by national peers. Uh, and it's been really exciting to see we uh, were discovered by a woman who's writing a book about uh, trying to make climate change more accessible to people and, and the role of museums specifically in being um, much more assertive about sharing climate change messaging within exhibits and using collections. And looking all over the country, we were one of only two examples that she could find where museums are not only just making their collections accessible, a lot of places are doing that, but actually taking the information and interpreting it and being active partners in the process of understanding and sharing. And so um, I'm really proud of the fact that our tiny, tiny historical society with only two full-time staff have been able to leverage this, this question that I asked out of total ignorance into a nationally renowned project that is going to serve as a model for other organizations. And I've been invited to speak about it with Catherine at um, different conferences. And then last week or two weeks ago, we received notice that we just won a National Leadership in History Award from the American Alliance for State and Local History, which is really exciting because we are placed on a national spectrum with huge organizations and really big, significant peers. 
And again, we're tiny. And, and I just want to say to kudos to every partner in this, we're all doing this on our own operational budgets. We have had two private donors who have been very, very kind and letting us, us experiment and, and funding, but their gifts in no way underwrite the total cost of this work. It's just that all of us understand that it's related to our mission and we believe in it. And we, this, this collaboration and this partnership that's come between very disparate organizations that in a lot of cases have never worked together before is so incredible and so inspiring. And I just feel like the more that we can share that joy and that inspiration, then I think Seth is right, that this is an inspiration for other places to take this and look in their own communities and their own backyards and start to see what changes they care about, document them, work with different partners to be able to leverage each tiny individual's space within their own organizational's mission to make it a much more impactful um, project and experience for people. That was Rainy Bench of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Our show today is about a very special project on MDI called A Landscape of Change. Prior to Rainy Bench from MDI Historical Society, we heard from Seth Benz from the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park, and also from Jennifer Steen Borer, an artist in residence with the MDI Historical Society, and Johanna Blackman from A Climate to Thrive. Next up, in the final part of our show, we talk now with two new guests, Catherine Schmidt and Kyle Lima, both from the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park, who will help us dive deeper into the stories and lasting legacies of the people who made the natural history observations more than a century ago that the Landscape of Change project is using as an ecological baseline. We'll also explore how everyday naturalists today, people like you and me, can contribute meaningful nature observations that scientists can use to make sense of ecological change over time. Just a reminder that both our conversations today were pre-recorded, so we're not taking any calls. Good morning. I'm Katherine Schmidt. I'm the Science Communication Specialist at Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. And I have been working with the Mount Desert Island Historical Society prior to this project for more than a decade on some of the archival materials and specifically the Champlain Society collection of notebooks. Um, and I was part of some of the initial conversations with Rainey about uh, starting the Landscape of Change project. Great. Thank you, Catherine. And we're going to dive into those Champlain Society notebooks in a minute. But first, Kyle, let's have you introduce yourself, too. Hi, I'm Kyle Lima. I am the data analyst for Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. And my role on this project was, uh, as it sounds, being the data analyst to analyze um, these historic data with modern data and make the conclusions that we present um, through this project. That's great. Catherine, let's jump in a little bit to the sources of the historical data. The primary source of the historical data, especially for birds, comes from the Champlain Society. 
who were a group of Harvard students who visited Mount Desert Island in the 1880s. They spent summers camping on the island and collecting natural history data on birds as well as plants, marine invertebrates, fish, insects. Um, but the bird, the work of the bird or the ornithology department was um, probably second in thoroughness to the plant, the botany department. And there was a list published um, sometime after 1883 of the birds that they observed um, only during the summer months that totaled about 98 species. And the, the notebooks, so the work of the scientific departments is described both in camp logbooks. So these are daily records of what the group was doing every day, um, both their scientific work as well as their social interaction. And then they also published meeting records, secretary reports, and then individual departments published their information on um, what was the lists of species and what was collected. Um, so there's multiple sources of information about the birds. Um, and so the notebooks in total, it's 19 notebooks of more than 1000 pages um, spanning the decade from 1880 to 1893. Um, and so these are held by the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. And so we were able to take the list of birds that were published, the notes on birds that were noticed, heard, and shot, which is how they collected birds in the 1880s, as they were described in the daily camp logs. And then another source of information that we had for the birds was the actual specimens which are in the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology Museum, and they have all been um, sort of cataloged and digitized. Um, and so those, we had sort of these multiple sources of information that we could use to align which species was found when, where, and by whom. And take us back to what's happening in 1880 in terms of what's going on with science at the time and with observations in the field and the way people are thinking about natural history, um, I guess through the eyes of the Champlain Society and who, who these people were. So this was a time when science was just beginning to professionalize. So they were actually coming, coming at natural history a little bit late. Um, just past, I would say, the peak of natural history collecting and activity when anybody could be a collector, anybody and everybody contributed to um, scientific journals and scientific meetings. You did not need a degree in science. In fact, there weren't options to get a degree in science. And so most of these students were majoring in, you know, they were going to become doctors or lawyers or businessmen. Most of them went on to work in factories, to work in academia, um, or they were doctors and lawyers. And so science was something that you sort of, and however strongly you were interested in it, it was sort of a side project. Um, but they were, so they were still sort of pursuing this romantic image of natural history. They, while they had what they called specialties, they all contributed to all of the different departments. What we can see in the Champlain Society is that 
beginning of professionalism in terms of the splintering into departments. So that separation from natural history into disciplines and the idea that they formed departments and that you had to pick a specialty and sort of um, like fragment. Um, and so that, so we, we kind of see that starting to happen with their work. Interesting. And how did this group's work contribute this is kind of a, a side jog, but I think is really interesting for our listeners. How did they this work contribute to the development of Acadia National Park? What's the link there? So there is a link there. Um, they came to the island repeatedly, so every year. And as they were out doing their collecting, as well as hiking and enjoying the environment, they were noticing a lot of changes happening. So they were noticing a lot of logging activity and wildfires and clearing um, damage to the environment, damage to streams and water quality. They were also noticing clearing for development. So we're reaching you know, our sort of tourism peak and a lot of clearing for both private summer homes as well as inns and other tourism infrastructure. And so immediately after just one summer of work, the members of the Champlain Society expressed concern about the future of Mount Desert Island in their notebooks and logbooks. And so we have the first recorded call for the protection of Mount Desert Island. And so one of the members who was their leader, who they called their captain, was Charles Elliott, who was the son of Harvard President Charles William Elliott. And he went on, um, he was noticing some of the same destruction and loss of access to nature at their home around Cambridge, Massachusetts, around Boston. So sprawl was happening around Boston. And so Charles Elliott was seeing the same thing happen and people losing the places that they loved. And so he took action in Massachusetts to form what ultimately became the Trustees of Reservations, which is the first land trust in the world. So the first model of private individuals coming together to acquire property and hold it in trust for the public. And so that became a model for every land trust and all the land trusts that we have around us today. And so Charles Elliott died when he was young. He died at age 37. Um, and so his father, Charles William Elliott, um, as sort of in his grief was going through his son's papers and organizing Champlain Society notebooks and other materials. And he kind of started to see these calls for protection of Mount Desert Island. And he himself knew that that was something that was needed from his own experience. They were living in Northeast Harbor by this time. And so he then got together with George Dorr and they formed the Hancock County Trustees of Public Reservations, which was modeled after the land trust in Massachusetts that his son created. And so that's the organization that ultimately donated the land that became Acadia National Park. So it's a little bit of a long, you know, it's hard to make it a short thread, but there is definitely a solid thread there. And it's just amazing that we still have all this data now, all these years later, that was so critical to so many developments back in the end of the 1800s and that you all have sort of brought back to life and are making really relevant today. It's very and, cool. and there is a connection to the science, right? So they weren't just like romping around the island, like they were intensely studying the island and intensely getting to know it. And it was that like focus that sort of instilled in them the sense of place that really motivated them to call for the protection of the place. So it, it was that, that attention and that focus and that care for the landscape, that science and natural history um, 
can inspire that that led directly to the conservation. And so I don't know, had they just been sort of visiting the island from a purely tourist perspective, um, had that call for protection happened and be brought to fruition. Yeah, which brings us to Kyle um, as a modern day scientist. Um, and so you um, are really, you've been the last few years really entering into the field of science. You've jumped right in on this project. Um, and I would love to hear what it's been like for you as a young scientist to dive into these historical records as you're really launching into your career and understanding science from a modern day lens and a modern day naturalist lens, because I know you're also a seasoned naturalist. Yeah, I think that it's, well, first off, it's probably, well, the data from that time period uh, is rare, right? Like a lot of having that source um, and this information uh, from a period back this, this early in time uh, or in science um, is just kind of unique and with that, I guess, working with it really brought an appreciation for things that we can do with historic data. Um, so I think that today we focus in science a lot on very extensive experimental product projects, right? Like doing these intense experiments in the forests and changing different uh, parameters, right? Changing how different things are growing or the amount of light certain plants get to test for different effects. And this is very not like that method, right? So instead of having this experimental design, we're kind of just doing this comparison, but it's at a rigorous level at the same time, right? Because we have these scientists in the 1880s performing real science, observational science, um, and with that comes important data that kind of speaks to the importance of long-term monitoring, um, which is something that we at Scudic Institute are highly supportive of and try to promote as much as possible. So I guess as someone who, you know, has done their undergraduate degree in a lot of this more modern science, um, this first project working with Scudic Institute for me really brought to light the importance of historical data and what we can actually gather from this. And I think that some people would be quick to discredit um, the kind of information that, we're, that we worked with, but I think that we as a society should definitely focus on the importance of knowing what things were like historically and being able to compare that to modern day stuff. And I think it's a really critical piece to understanding what things were like and where or what we should shoot for, for different management goals or other future research. Very cool. Um, and I'm curious to hear from you, um, what have been some of the most interesting findings that you've identified comparing back then to today and sort of what you make of that. And I would love to hear from both of you because I suspect some of the interesting ones will be similar, but some might be different between you guys. So to me, anyway, one of the things that I find interesting is passenger pigeon 
was still being seen in the 1880s, right? There was still a population. Um, and for people who may not know much about passing pigeon, they are now extinct. Um, so it, it's very interesting that passenger pigeon were here, were documented by the Champlain Society and now have not been seen for um, over hundred years. So, so very cool change there. Um, something else, I think that the things that interest me a lot are how the forests and the you know, agriculture on the landscape or whatever the different land types are that make up an area, how those change and, and I guess what species react to those in different ways are often some of my uh, favorite observations or, or favorite um, results from studies. So for example, these boreal species, so the species that are that need coniferous forests, um, something like Canada jay uh, or boreal chickadee, both species would have been present in this area uh, historically and then throughout time uh, are really disappearing. So it's kind of a connection to this boreal forest loss, the, lo the loss of coniferous forest um, in, the, in the region, in the Cadena Park. So, well, not necessarily in the park because it's preserved, but in the areas surrounding the Cadena National Park. Yeah, and that feels so especially relevant given the larger context of this whole project being climate change in terms of what are the changes that we're going to see in the coming decades and century. Um, what about you, Catherine? What have been some things that really sort of struck your interest in the findings? So there's two things. The, the first is how much has not changed. So I think it feels so much like everything is changing and everything is changing so fast and it's very unsettling and and can be very disturbing um, and distressing at times and so to realize that much of what was here then is still here now and actually not declining or in some cases increasing and i don't think we don't celebrate enough the things that aren't changing and the things that are sort of still here um, even the way that we say that, right, still here as if we're expecting everything to disappear tomorrow. Um, and so that's just, it's very reassuring. Um, and it and it causes me to just sort of look at what we would call a common species or really anything um, with more appreciation. And then the second thing is, is the ongoing change. So I think we another thing is that we tend to think of everything as static. Um, especially in a place that's protected like Acadia, that it's it's sort of frozen in time and everything that was there should be there. But we know for thousands and millions of years that plant and animal populations have just, they're constantly shifting and moving and spreading, um, expanding, shrinking, and that just happens in response to all kinds of changes. The landscape changes and land cover that Kyle described, um, both sort of human induced as and climate induced. And so just knowing that this, this sort of shifting of ranges and population boom and bust um, is, is very natural and that whatever unnatural sort of or damaging changes we're seeing are sort of within this framework of change. And so a lot we, we did, um, we were able to 
show a lot of new species that have arrived on the island. So, so there's a whole list of birds that the Champlain Society did not see and did not record. And there's a whole bunch of insects. Of, so for insects, we only focused on bees, butterflies, and moths. Um, and there's a whole, you know, like 88 of those that iNaturalist observers have found that uh, 20th century naturalists did not find. So one of the things we, we didn't do in the analysis was show the connections to climate, right? So for some of the changes, we can infer a, a, a climate link, but for most we can't. And that's part of our continuing work. So in order to, to show whether or not these changes are connected to climate or something else like land use change, as Kyle described, um, we need to do continued research. And so that's part of our, we're not finished with this project, but we're continuing. Um, to dig a little deeper um, into the different groups, birds, insects, and other things, um, to pull in new data sets, to digitize more data, and do some deeper analysis. You've been listening to Coastal Conversations today on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org. Winding down our conversation just now was Catherine Schmidt, science writer at the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. And before Catherine was Kyle Lima, a data analyst also based at Skudik Institute. And with that, we've come to the end of our hour today learning about A Landscape of Change, the ongoing project to compare historical and contemporary observations of MDI's natural landscape in order to document and make sense of environmental and climate-driven changes. Our guests today, through two separate conversations, were Rainy Bench, Executive Director for the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Johanna Blackman, Executive Director of A Climate to Thrive, Jennifer Steen Bohr, an artist in residence with the MDI Historical Society, Seth Benz, Director of Bird Ecology at Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park, Catherine Schmidt, science writer with Skudik Institute, and Kyle Lima, data analyst also with Skudik Institute. I'm grateful to all of them for sharing the story of a landscape of change and for their good work on Mount Desert Island. I'm sure we'll come back to this topic in the future as our guests today are only just getting started with this project. If you want to learn more about a landscape of change or find out how to get involved yourself as a citizen scientist or participate in any of the upcoming events where you can see the artwork and learn more, check out the websites of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society and the Skudik Institute at Acadia National Park. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good